Thanks, Rosie. That was a long passage to read, uh, and if I had my way, I would talk you through every single image in that passage, but we don't have time, and if I tried, my colleagues would give me a talking to tomorrow. So we're going to look at some really key things that come out of that passage, uh, but before we do, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that this book of Revelation uh, reveals Jesus Christ to us. It shows us uh, that he is the beginning and the end. And Lord, please help us to understand the end as we look at this passage today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we have come to the end. We've come to the end of this series. We've come to the end of the book of Revelation for a second time this uh, year. And what you get at the end of Revelation is the resolution of the story. That's the, the finish of it. All great stories resolve at the end, and Revelation is no different. And really what you're getting here at the end of this book is not just the resolution of a good story. It's not just the end of the Lord of the Rings or something. It's the resolution of all of time in history. That's what we get at the end. And the way it resolves, we saw last week, is with a wedding. And after this wedding, God moves in with his bride. That's how the whole thing ends. And, and uh, just look at what the text says about this unified home, this marital home. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You see, up until now, all through this series, we've been, we've been talking about two separate and very distinct but connected realms. We've been talking about heaven and we've been talking about earth. Heaven, remember, is through the door in Revelation 4. Heaven is where God's will is done completely and utterly and perfectly. And heaven is where God is worshipped wholeheartedly. There's no half-hearted worship there. But then as we've looked at what goes on here on earth, we've seen that earth is where God's will is resisted or it's even opposed. And we've seen that worship of God on earth is at best half-hearted, but in most places is non-existent. And what we've seen so far is that these two realms, heaven and earth, they are connected. And we've seen that what happens in heaven, what's said in heaven, affects what happens here on earth. And when something happens here on earth, there is a reaction in heaven. That's what we've seen. These two realms are connected, but they are separate and distinct from one another. They're not the same realm. But when you get to chapter 21, at the very end of history, heaven and earth are going to be joined together. The place where God dwells and the place where humanity dwells are going to become the same. Earth will finally become the place where God's will is done. Earth will finally become the place where God is worshipped wholeheartedly, where your heart is wholly devoted to him. I remember um, back when Emmy and I were dating. I should probably tell Emmy I'm going to do this, but I never tell her. But when Emmy and I were dating, um, you know that the worst part about dating and being engaged, you know the worst part about it is, is at the end of the day, it's like you have to go home to your separate places. That's the worst part about it, right? So those of you who are engaged, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying, right? Um, and uh, I remember, you know, I'd go home or Emmy would go home and uh, we'd call each other. And we had this sort of phone plan where we had like unlimited talking to each other. We could just be on the phone for, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it wouldn't cost any more on our phone plan. And so... Uh, you know, so we get into, I'd get into bed in, in my apartment, and we'd get into bed in, in her house, and, uh, and then we'd call each other. 
and we would just talk and sometimes read to each other and pray and, and do all that over the phone uh, and just leave the phone on until one of us fell asleep. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> I thought I'd hear more awes, but... There was a longing, like we could not wait until our lives were joined together. We just couldn't wait. But the best we could do was call each other on the phone. That's how the book of Revelation is supposed to make you feel. You can't wait. You're longing for that time when heaven and earth will be joined together. And so when you read this book and you see what is happening on earth and it's all chaos and pain and suffering and destruction... And then you look through the door and you see what heaven is like. And it's all glory and honor and power and wisdom and might and shiny things and incredible beings. And it's heaven in all of its perfection and its goodness. And when you contrast the two, you just long for that. You long for heaven. You want to be in that place. That's how you're supposed to feel when you read Revelation. When your attention through the book just gets shifted back and forth from heaven to earth to heaven to earth. You're supposed to long for that. And for some of you, that's exactly how you feel. Life on earth has been so hard, you're just longing for the day when heaven and earth are joined together. And all the tears and the sadness and the loneliness and the fear and the grief and the foreignness of living in a country far from home, that will all be over one day. And you're just longing for that. I know that's true for some of you. But for others, if you're honest, you'd be okay with Jesus taking his sweet time in coming. You've got your own wedding coming. You've got a house that you want to buy. You've got a career that you want to build. You've been building a little heaven for yourself. You've been building a life for yourself that doesn't include sadness, right? You've been trying to build a life for yourself that doesn't include loneliness or doesn't include fear or any of those things. And so perhaps for you, if Jesus returned, that would mess it all up for you. And so what we've got here in this passage is both an encouragement and a challenge. If your life is hard, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because Jesus is coming to restore all things and to make everything new. But if your life is a little too comfortable, if you're longing more for the next luxury, if you spend more time thinking about building a safe life here on earth than you do longing for a life in heaven, then this passage ought to challenge you. It ought to push you. And so let's take a look and see what it will be like after the wedding. So after the wedding, when God moves in, we're going to see three things happen when heaven and earth are joined together. We're going to see that the new heavens and the new earth is first a glorious city, Second, it's an intimate bride. And third, it's a restorative land. So let's look at this, a glorious city. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth, it's described here with this image of a city. And notice first in verse 2 how it's described as a city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then look down at verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like a jasper clear as crystal. 
Do you remember a few summers ago when the Giants came to town? Do you remember that? I had a Giants party in my house because they went past our house. The Giants came to town, and uh, if you don't know, there are these French Giants that came wandering around town, uh, and uh, one of them, uh, I think the grandma who's on the picture there, she, you know, I believe the term here is trumped. She would trump around the city. Um, and, uh, and there was a dog and a little girl, and they just wandered around the city, and people came from all over the place to come and see these giants. And there was a certain glory that came to our city that summer. Not only were the streets cleaner and the buildings shinier, but there was an incredible amount of glory that went before and surrounded and followed the giants. It was like a swell. If you were standing in the crowd waiting for them to come on, on your street, there was this swell that came. You know, As soon as somebody caught wind of them coming, there, there began to be a murmur in the crowd and the excitement rose. And as soon as the giants were approaching, this excitement just swelled into like pictures being taken and for some reason people waving at inanimate giants <laughs> as if they could see you. And then the giants would pass on, and, 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 and the glory would kind of pass. And, and what people would do, you'd, you'd watch it. People started following the giants around the city. Or you know what we did? We actually ran to another part in the city to try to catch the glory again. But as that weekend came to a close, the glory diminished. And the giants left town, and the city returned to normal. They haven't come back. I don't know if we offended them, but they haven't been back. But this city, this city in in this text, the New Jerusalem, it's like that. It's a city that is filled with glory. Only that glory and that city doesn't diminish. The glory of the New Jerusalem, the holy city, will never diminish because the glory of the city is God himself. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its glory. Look at verse 11 again. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. You know, every great city has its glory. Every great city has a permanent fixture of glory that people come from all over the world to see. Here in Liverpool, it's Anfield and Goodison. One is more glorious than the other. In New York, I mean, there's lots, but it's probably the Empire State Building. Everyone goes to see that. If you go to Paris, it's the Eiffel Tower. You have to go and see the glory of the city. That one's even shiny. It like lights up at night. And the way this new city is described, you might think that its streets or its walls or its foundations are its glory because they all shine. It says that there's a great high wall with 12 gates made of giant pearls and 12 angels standing at its gates. And the city is huge. It's laid out like a cube as long and wide as it is high. It says it's 1,200 stadia or something like that, which is about 1,500 miles, the distance between here and Naples, Italy. And the walls of the city are made of jasper, and the city itself is made of pure gold. Pure gold. And the foundations are made of precious stones like sapphires and emeralds and rubies. But that's not the city's glory. Okay, if the building or the walls or the streets aren't the glory, then for sure it's got to be the main religious center. That's going to be its glory. Surely it's going to be a cathedral or a temple. But notice verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. All right, it's got to be the view. It's got to be the natural beauty and wonder of this city. 
It's a place where you can get a nice suntan and watch an amazing sunset and the light of the moon gives it its glory through the night. That's got to be the new city's glory, right? Verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb is its lamp. And are you starting to see There's no temple because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no sun or moon because God's glory gives the city its light. The glory of this city is God Himself. The walls made of jasper and the gates made of pearls and the city made of gold and the foundations made of rubies and emeralds. They're just the furniture. They're just there to adorn the glory of God Himself. The glory of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And so when heaven and earth are joined together as one, the glory of the city will be God himself. He will be at the center of everything. He will be your glory. He will be the thing that you find most satisfying, most glorious, most interesting, most enjoyable. He'll be at the center of all of it. He's the glory. And just think about that for a minute. What's the glory of your life? What do you find most satisfying? What do you find most interesting? What do you find most glorious? Most enjoyable in this life? What are you consumed with in your mind? Whatever that thing is, that's the glory of your life. Because the picture that we get of heaven is that everyone there is going to be consumed with the glory and the majesty of God. He's the glory of the city. Well, let's, let's go back through the text again because the new heavens and the new earth, not only is it described as this glorious city, it's also described as an intimate bride. Look again at verse 2. The city is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And in verse 9, one of the angels says to John, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And you remember last week, we said that before God could move in with us, there had to be a wedding. Well, by the time you get to chapter 21, the wedding has happened. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you remember from last week what all this wedding imagery shows us? We saw last week that God doesn't just want to relate to us as a king, as a warrior, as a judge, as a savior. He wants to relate to us in all those ways, but he also wants to relate to us like a groom. What does a groom long for? What does a groom wait for? Um, recently, uh, a couple from our church got married. Maybe you were there. Pete and Grace got married. And I was performing the ceremony. And um, I had worked out a signal with the guy in the back who was running the sound system and you know, kind of running the day. And he said, okay, they've got a video that they want to show just before the bride comes in. So uh, if you could just get everybody's attention, then I'll play the video and then the bride will come in. And I'll let you know, I'll give you, I'll give you the thumbs up and I'll fade the music down when she's here. And then you'll know, just go stand up in front of everybody and tell everybody to watch the video. So I'm there waiting and I see him come from the door and he does this. 
And then he goes to the sound desk and he fades the music down. And I say to everybody, oh, Pete and Grace would love for you to watch this video. So please uh, have a seat and take a look at this video. And the video plays. And as the video plays, I see this guy running from the back up to the front. And he comes and whispers in my ear, I made a mistake. She's not here yet. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do? And he's like, I'll just play some more music. Okay. And he goes back and uh, just puts on some music. And I'm, sta- I'm standing to the side, and Pete is sta- sitting right in the front, and I can see him, and the nervousness in him is just crazy. He's just shaking a little bit. And he looks over at me with this, like, what's going on look. <laughs> and I look back at him with the, like, what do you think's going on? And- <laughs> He was longing for her to come. He couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. (laughs) And you know, when we think about heaven, we think about this stuff, we think about this image of the wedding of the lamb, we often only think about it from our point of view, right? The point of view of the bride. But have you ever thought about it from God's point of view? Have you thought about it from the point of view of the groom, that the groom wants to dwell with you? The very thing that Jesus Christ has been longing for is this moment when he will permanently and intimately be united with his church, with his bride, with you and me. Only Jesus hasn't been waiting five extra minutes. He's been waiting since the fall of man. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God and humankind, are, they're dwelling together in the garden. That's what's happening there. But then in chapter 3, it all falls apart. When the first humans turn their back on God and they sin against Him, one of the results is that humans are sent out from the garden. And so God and humans are no longer dwelling together. They're dwelling in separate realms. But that's what God is longing for. He's longing to dwell with His people. And in Exodus 29, we begin to get a glimmer of this longing because by the time you get to Exodus 29, God's begun to talk about dwelling with His people again. And for a while, he's going to do it in the tabernacle. That's what's being talked about in Exodus 29, that God's presence will dwell in this tent. And then God's going to dwell in the temple, this permanent building, but only ever in part, only ever partially, because in the tabernacle and the temple, only the high priest could actually enter God's presence. And even then, it it wasn't safe for him to do so. And then... When you read through the Old Testament and you get to the Old Testament prophets, you start to read things like Ezekiel 43, which is the tail end of the prophet Ezekiel getting a vision, not unlike John's vision in Revelation 21. Ezekiel is getting a vision of the temple that will be restored in Jerusalem after the exile. In Ezekiel 43.7 it says this, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And so here in Ezekiel, you catch a glimpse of the long-term plan, which is a place where God will dwell in the midst of his people forever. And then you get to John chapter 1. And listen to how John, the same person who wrote Revelation, listen to how he describes Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And do you remember what our definition of heaven is? Heaven is the place where God's presence is. It's the place where God's will is done 
perfectly. Everybody obeys him completely. It's the place where he is worshipped wholeheartedly. Isn't that exactly who Jesus was when he was on earth? The fully obedient one? The one who obeyed the will of the Father perfectly, without fail? Isn't he the one whose heart was completely and supremely turned towards his Father? Jesus is heaven come to earth. Jesus is God now with us. But even that was only a partial fulfillment of the dwelling to come. Even that was only a partial fulfillment of what we're looking at in Revelation 21 which is a final and complete merger of heaven and earth when God will be our God and we will be his people and God will dwell with us forever and ever. And just think about that. Look at it from God's perspective for a minute. Just think about how much Jesus, the bridegroom, must be longing for this wedding. How much Jesus must be longing for this day. Listen, if you're single, can I just talk to you for a minute? Do you know do you know how you feel at a wedding? You're single? Jesus must have felt that at every single wedding that he went to. This longing for his own wedding, this longing for the wedding of the Lamb, he must have felt that. And so Jesus can identify with you even in that. He knows the pain. He knows the longing of waiting. He knows it. Well, when this wedding comes, God is going to establish a household with his bride. His dwelling place is going to be with us, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. And when it is, when he is that, look at the tenderness of the groom in verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now this is a very intimate act. I mean, you don't just let anyone touch your face. Don't even try. Some people tried to give me pet names after last week. Don't try to touch my face today. (laughs) You certainly don't just let anyone wipe your tears away. You only let someone that you're intimate with do that. And for those of you whose life is hard... If your life right now is filled with pain and rejection and sadness and loneliness, this image ought to make your heart sore. That one day Jesus will wipe the tears from your eyes. And it's this point, this picture of the future hope that we have that should give you the strength to endure any suffering that you face here on earth. Remember this book, Revelation, was actually a letter. It was a letter to seven real churches facing real human suffering. And what some of those churches needed to endure was to endure this suffering that they were going through. What they needed was hope. They needed something to cling to, something to long for. They needed a hope that everything would one day be okay. You see, we tend to look at our lives and think, if everything's going all right, if it's all going to plan, if I'm not suffering... Then God's on my side, he's blessing my life, and everything's good, right? That's how we look at life. And that might be true. That might be true. We also tend to look at our lives, and if things are going wrong, if life is hard, if things are painful, if I'm suffering, then we think I must be doing something wrong, and God must be punishing me. But of course that can't be true. That can't be true. 
Because very often doing the right thing brings direct suffering. Just look at Jesus' own life. Doing the right thing brought him only suffering. And these Christians who originally received this letter 2,000 years ago, they're living in cities where to live as a Christian, to do right things, meant cultural shaming. For some of them, it meant fleeing their homes. For others, it meant being in prison. For others, it actually meant that they were killed. And so these Christians, these early Christians, they needed a hope to endure. And the book of Revelation was that hope for them. And do you know what? It, act, it worked for them. It's a fact of history that it worked for them because Christianity is still around today. These early Christians, they, they were. They were sent into the Roman arena with lions singing worship songs to Jesus as they were killed. The early Christians, they stayed back during the plagues in the cities when everyone else fled. The Christians stayed back, looked after the sick, and even got sick and died themselves. These early Christians had a hope that meant they could endure anything. And this hope is that one day Jesus Christ will dwell with them fully. One day Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. And if it worked for them, who were put into the arena, if it works for those who are in the arena with lions, then it can work for you as you face your own suffering. If it worked for the early Christians who stayed behind in the city during the plagues, it can work for you as you face sickness and death and loneliness. So what are you facing? What are you enduring right now? What is it that when you think about it, you just want to give up. You just want to throw in the towel, I'm done. Whatever that is, this hope that Jesus Christ will dwell with you and that he will wipe every tear from your eye, that's what gives you the strength to endure that. That's how you get through that. That's how you get past it. It doesn't take it away, but it gives you hope and courage. But one day Jesus is going to dwell with us fully and he's going to restore everything. And that leads us to our third point. The new heavens and the new earth are described. They're described as a glorious city, as an intimate bride. And now finally they're described as a restorative land. Look at the rest of verse 4. Every tear is going to be wiped from their eyes. And then it says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Did you see this at the end of verse 4? That when heaven and earth are joined together, the old order of things will be passed away. It's gone. And what happens in the old order? Well, you die. And there's mourning. And there's crying. And there's pain. But when heaven and earth are joined together, all of that passes away. And look at verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the one seated on the throne talking here. And in the midst of all of these incredible visions that we've seen in the heavenly throne room and all through Revelation, the one seated on the throne, he hasn't said anything yet. Well, he said something in chapter 1, verse 8, but I think it was just quoting this. So he hasn't said anything yet. In this whole book of Revelation, he hasn't, the one seated on the throne hasn't said a word yet. But look at what he says in verse 5. This is the first thing he says. I am making everything new. I 
And these words, I'm making everything new, these are the most authoritative and trustworthy words that we've seen so far in the whole book. Because now it's the one seated on the throne who's talking, the one who every one and everything has been bowing to and singing to and looking to, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He speaks now, and what does he use his voice to say? I'm making everything new. When heaven and earth are finally joined together, it will all be restored. We will be restored people. The earth will be a restored earth. And look at what this restored creation will be like. In verse 1, it says there's no longer any sea. Why, why no sea? Well, in the Bible, the sea often stands as an image of chaos and evil that stands in opposition to God. In Revelation, the sea is the place where the terrifying evil powers emerge from to do battle. And the sea is the place where greed and corruption is grown. And so this picture of no sea is heaven's way of saying that the new creation, when you get there, all evil and corruption, all of that will be gone. All of that will be done away with. We've already seen in verse 4 that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And then in verse 8 and in verse 27, there's no longer any sin. All sin is done away with. In the new creation, no one will ever again disobey God. Our hearts will be transformed and we will no longer turn from God to idols. We will no longer turn to our sinful desires. And no one who has sinful desires, no one who is idolatrous will be allowed in. They'll be sent to destruction. And notice in verse 25, you'll never need to shut the gates of the city because there'll be no threat of danger. That's what the restored heaven and earth looks like. And here's what this shows us. It shows us that anything that you could build on your own in this life, it only pales in comparison to what the Lord is building. Remember I said at the beginning that this passage ought to challenge some of you, that there are some of you who are attempting to build your own little restored kingdom on earth. You're expending all of your energy to, to build a life that gets rid of the sea, to create a little cocoon for you and your family where there's no sadness, no mourning, no crying, no pain. You're putting up gates to keep the culture out and to keep everything in your life nice and tidy and safe. But you'll never be able to do that here on earth. The only way you get any of that is by looking forward to this future city. And the only way you make it through the sadness and the mourning and the pain and the suffering and the trials on earth is to place your hope in the city whose architect and builder is God. And so give up the lie that you can build a secure life for yourself in your own strength. Give it up. You can put all the security and safety into your life and to your family, but until heaven and earth are joined together, we still live here on earth. And there's still suffering and pain and trials. And so give up the lie that you can build that on your own and look to this future city. Well, as we come to the end, I want to return to the image of this glorious city because you get the sense as you read through this that you don't belong in the city. Now, this is a city for the pure, a city for the righteous. It's called the holy city, and so only holy people belong there. And you don't belong a couple of years ago, uh, we tra I traveled to Albania for the first time uh, with Emmy's family. 
And we're about to go up into the mountain village where um, her dad grew up. A really extremely remote mountain village. And you have to kind of carry everything in or you don't have anything when you're there. And so we stopped at the last town before the village. Uh, and it was all of Emmy's extended family on her dad's side. We're all in this grocery store. Basically, we bought everything in the grocery store. And uh, as there often is, um, there's a fight over who's going to pay. And everyone's arguing, not like you pay, but I'll pay. And I was in the middle of it, and Emmy just said, Ken, you're making it worse. Just take all the groceries and go outside, and I'll take care of it. And so I go and stand out on the street, and I've got about 15, 20 bags of groceries around me. And across the street is a big apartment building um, with balconies all facing this grocery store. And I'm standing there, and it's taking about 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes for them to sort out who's going to pay. And I start to look around, and I look at this apartment building, and popping out of every single apartment are two or three or four people, and every single one of them is staring at me. Big, tall, white, American-looking guy. And there's people on the street, and they're coming out, and they're coming up to me. And, and Emmy finally comes out and says, Emmy, we have to get out of here right now. I do not belong here. And that's the sense you get when you read this. I don't belong in this pure city, in this holy city. And maybe that's how you feel about the new heavens and the new earth. You don't belong there. And that's true, actually. You don't belong there. Because all of us have in our hearts the things listed in verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Those things are in every single one of our hearts. And if those things are in your heart, then you don't belong in the city. It says again in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so if that's true, if you don't belong in the city of your own accord, how do you get your name written there? How do you get invited to come and live in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. You see, you can't enter the city on your own accord. To get in, you have to drink the water that God gives from the spring. And what is the spring of living water but Jesus Christ himself? In the book of John, one of the Apostle John's other books, and, and there he's recounting the story of Jesus' life on earth. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman by the well, and they're talking about water from the well. And do you know what he says to her? John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will, will become in him a spring of the water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus Christ, he's the spring of the water of life. And how does Jesus give us this life? Well, he does it by laying down his own. And so do you feel like you can't enter the new Jerusalem? You feel like you can't enter this new city? You don't belong there? Well, Jesus, the pure one. The one who is nothing to be ashamed of. The one who never told even one lie. Jesus Christ, who is the only human to ever deserve to enter the city because he's perfectly obedient. He was taken outside the walls of the first Jerusalem. He was taken outside the walls with the vile and the impure and the shameful and the idolaters and the sexually immoral and the liars. And he experienced death outside the city. He was killed on a cross outside the city so that we who are impure and shameful and deceitful can enter into the new city, into the new Jerusalem. And if we trust him, we get to drink this water. 
And as we drink this water, as we drink from this well continually, the next verse says that we're victorious. That we've overcome this world and we receive the inheritance as talked about in verse 7. And so you can enter the city. Taking the Lord's Supper or communion, it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder of Jesus being taken outside the city and shedding his blood so that we could enter this new city. And as we drink the cup and eat the bread, we're reminded that it's by drinking from the spring of the water of life that we can be fully and completely restored. And we're going to be reminded of that now as Morris comes to lead us in taking communion together. As Morris comes, let's pray. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy because you have redeemed people from every language and tribe and nation. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom and strength.